This is, uh, my name's Grant Roberts. Uh, I am the host of the as yet unnamed video game podcast. I suppose right now it's called the two versus two podcast, but as people keep telling me, we may change the number of people who are developers and non-developers, but we'll get into that in a minute. I'm Grant Roberts. Uh, I am the lead content designer at the amazing society. Um, my co-host is shut up over there. My (laughs) co-host now that's that's never a way to treat our guests. Um, my my co-host uh, is Joe Caruso. Hi, Joe. Hello. Hey, Joe. Uh, I guess I'm supposed to introduce myself. It seems like when you say hi, Joe, that there's going to be a follow-up question. I could. Uh, Joe, what do you do for a living? <laughs> I am a network engineer, which places me outside of the game development industry. But I have known Grant for 15 years. Uh, he is one of the people in my life that I will always be able to sit down across from and have a conversation as though we were never parted. And uh, I am a huge nerd. So um, I suppose as the gamer, non-developer on the podcast that is that is regularly here, um, people would expect me to provide a mainstream perspective, but that is not at all the case. Uh, my life revolves around games. I have played Dungeons and Dragons since I was seven. I LARP. I play Magic the Gathering. I am, in general, a huge ball of nerd. Um, discard your preconceptions because I am fit and attractive. But uh, but yeah, so that's the perspective I'm coming from. I do play a lot of video games, but probably more niche than most people do. And I think that today, at least, we're relying on Dave. You like this segue? We're relying on Dave to provide a more mainstream perspective. Oh, fabulous. That means you're supposed to introduce yourself. All right, so uh, my name is David Habib, and I am a uh, technology consultant, father of two, and what I would call a casual gamer. Um, I'm the kind of guy who, if given the option, will play the game on easy, because I'm more interested in seeing how the game goes than proving anything to anyone. That's kind of a misnomer when you say that you're a casual gamer, though. And we'll get to our fourth guest in just a second, I promise. But your gamer score is actually higher than mine, David. Well, okay, but that is a function of a couple of things. It's a function of the fact that I will spend money on games um, and (laughs) will, you know, like lots of games. And also there was a a period not too long ago where I spent six to eight months unemployed. And so most of you'll if you did a deep dive you'd find that I do have a large gamer score but it's not because of an exhaustive exploration of a small number of games it's from a casual exploration of a large number of games okay well that's good that was that was very good that was very succinct and professional and uh thank you it's um how our role sure <laughs> our second guest uh in our inaugural podcast uh would uh, maybe he should say his name i could try to say it and that would be fun for everybody um why am I the second guest when we already talked to two other people? Because Joe and I are the regular hosts, in theory. Uh, we're going to be on it every week, and then we're going to rotate in. The plan yeah. is to rotate in one developer and one non-developer gamer every week. You can consider this to be a probationary period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I'm Matthias, and I'm the German, and I think that's pretty much all you have to hear about this. <laughs> No, well, well, we all said German. our names. I mean, you know, that's how I know Grant, and I've never actually met those other two fellows that we're talking to right now. But we met back 
in Virginia at Legend, and I was known as the German there because I was the only German around. I've since moved to California, where I'm in a much larger community of Germans, so I'm not the German anymore. I've been, been making games for like 10 years or so, so I guess I'm the guest developer this year, or uh, this episode. And I can't yes, really talk too much about what I've been doing recently because there's so much stuff going on. But um, you may have known me from games that I made at Factor 5, where we made Star Wars games, or the ill-fated Lair which has been described as a beautiful disaster, which is still the nicest thing anybody said about one of my games. And, of course, anything that I've worked on with Grant back at Legend. Yes, we, uh, we, Matthias and I worked together for uh, approximately five years at Legend Entertainment. We made The Wheel of Time together. We made uh, Unreal 2, The Awakening together, which the other games are starting to use The Awakening as a subtitle. I'm really? finding that really? interesting. Yeah, yeah. Def- Defense Grid, The Awakening, was just released uh, huh. by uh, by uh, Hidden Path Entertainment <laughs> in Seattle. I can also point out that there is a pen and paper RPG that uses colon The Awakening. What is it? It's called Mage. Oh, Mage has changed so that because that used to be something else. It used didn't to it? be the Ascension, but when they released, I guess the fourth edition, which is part of the new World of Darkness, it's now called Mage: mm-hmm. The Awakening. I see. Well, well, we would be owed royalties for that if our company wasn't shut down in two thousand four. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so that yeah, that's uh, I, I I briefly <laughs> quiet you. I briefly touched on the format. Uh, this is this podcast is is like I said, it's supposed to be uh, a combination of developers and non-developer gamers every week. When we're just going to talk about video games, this is not going to be. Here's what I'm working on at my studio right now. And let me let me throw in this disclaimer, which I should have done at the top of the show, and we'll probably run at the top of the show anyway. The opinions expressed here during this podcast absolutely do not represent the views of our employers unless explicitly stated by us. So, this is not where you people are, are not going to get in trouble for coming on here. Alright, to now, caveat that, though, I, I am my employer, and so in my case, my statements are the opinions of my employer. But you just explicitly explicitly stated it, so... Yeah, okay. So There, there that was good. Yeah, now, easy. now, I think that was a great setup, Grant, but I already have a reason to derail the podcast, and that is that I'm fascinated that we have someone here that has worked on Lair, um, okay. because I don't really know anything about the game. I never played it, but didn't it get absolutely skewered by Penny Arcade? Well, the, there's a long list of games that have been skewered by Penny Arcade, some fairly, some unfairly, but it was... Uh, well, I think what yeah. Penny Arcade did more, they were very much skewing or doing a whole bunch of um, um, scripts about, like, strips about how people were talking about the game, because we had, like, a very vocal minority, or you know how the internet is, people are just st- talking about stuff even though they don't know much, and they're either going to be completely for or against it. So I think Penny Arcade had a lot of fun pretty much calling those people out for defending a game that they didn't know anything about, or, you know, the other way around as well. I don't think they liked the game much, but um, <laughs> that's okay. It might also have been a little bit of a backlash because um, there actually are a bunch of Factor 5 uh, strips from back then which were about um, Star Wars, which Gabe really liked. He's a big Star Wars fan, I guess. So, you know, Factor 5 actually had a history of making games that Penny Arcade liked, and then Lair came out, and yeah. Beautiful <laughs> well, disaster. I mean, is that deeply weird? Because there's absolutely nothing that can happen in my profession where, like, a couple of guys with a pulpit and a huge cult following can say, these people are idiots and we don't like what they did, and 
that's going to result in some sort of a huge uproar. Yeah, but I still think like when it really comes to the sales, um, it's still a pretty small hardcore following. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know what kind of influence Penny Arcade has, but I don't think they can kill or make a game. I just like the fact that, hey, I'd much rather be somebody they talk about than, you know, not be acknowledged at all. And they just actually, well, you know, they just made a game, one of like some of my developer friends back from Factor 5 made, which is called Word Ace. And they had a little, it's um, Texas Hold'em. It's an iPhone or mobile phone oh, yeah. game. It's Texas Hold'em um, combined with Scrabble. And they gave him a big shout-out. And, you know, they actually made that game to the point where a lot of people downloaded it. So when you actually stay in this smaller, our group, you know, we're paying attention to them. Yeah, sure, their opinion is going to be important. But again, I'd much rather have them say something because it's always clever, right? I mean, it's never just mean-spirited or bad. I'd much rather see that opinion and have a script, uh, strip about my game than having them say anything. That's a very positive outlook to have. Well, you have Especially to. Cause... I mean, it's the internet, right? If you really like take it too seriously, yeah, I don't think that would work very well. Well, it's true, and I don't know. I mean, have any of the games that you or I have worked on ever been mentioned by them besides that one? Um, I don't think so, unless they mentioned Sin, which you worked yeah, on. Yeah, actually, the very so. first Penny Arcade strip, like official Penny Arcade <laughs> strip, was a Sin <laughs> strip. True. Actually, I have that on my webpage, and it was about the long um, load times, which were there, we just didn't notice them, so... But, I mean, Grant, you remember when we were working on Wheel of Time, I mean, that's a beloved franchise, and we had so many people with so many opinions just, like, on the forums and expressing that opinion. Absolutely. In a nice way. So you can listen to it, you can acknowledge it, but really you can't take it too seriously in that, you know, it would change your outlook on why you're making the game or why you're making games in general. Well, that's true. Uh-oh. Grant, you did the oh. mute button thing. <laughs> See, Dave can instantly recognize him. That's good. Um, I was you, really David. worried. I thought yep. the whole thing had blown up, and then Dave stepped in <laughs> no. to reassure us. He's like, oh, you muted it with your gut. Yeah, and now you are. know why I'm here. I'm the key grip. <laughs> yeah, for those who don't know this, uh, and judging by our download stats, very few of you would, uh, David and I also uh, do a podcast, just the two of us, uh, called The Rather Tall Podcast, rathertall.com. Um, and we've gone over this Grant accidentally muting the microphone with his belly uh, before. Your belly. Um, my belly. My <laughs> belly, yes. Uh, but it's but what Mattia said is true in that at least they're saying something about it. Even in, even in forums where, where people are you know split 90-10 disliking your game versus liking it, at least there's that passionate fan base. It's, it's something at least people out there are caring enough about it to do something, especially when it rises to something to the level of something like Penny Arcade, which in the example that, that you just gave of, you know, their very first strip, they probably had an audience of four at that point, but you know, at least, at least people were noticing. So has it been your experience, the, those of you that are, are in the industry that your support versus non-support falls to a 90, 10 kind of fraction, like either one way or another, you're either very popular or very unpopular, but you always have a, a a a core that's on the other side. I was uh, I was using that as an extreme case. Yeah, ninety ten would be would be very rare. I think that 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 kind of that level of vitriol is reserved for if you're taking either a licensed IP or the sequel to something that everybody loved and just massacring it. Mm -hmm. Then you'll get that level of 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 you know of polarization spewed yeah. at you. But you know well, when did, we were did working not on feel that way about Wheel of Time. I mean, weren't there people who did feel that you were eviscerating that in some way? I don't know that there was that much. Of, you'll have to speak to this yourself, Matt. But I don't. 
my job as as kind of community wrangler started with Unreal 2, and so I didn't see much of it for The Wheel of Time, but I get the impression that The Wheel of Time, kind of like Unreal 2, had a very tiny fan base of incredibly devoted people. That well, were it, take, it takes a certain kind of person to read 7,000 yes. pages in the first mm-hmm. place, and so... <laughs> but I mean, I was going to ask, actually, Joe, is it Dave or David, actually? Uh, I, I prefer David, but no one seems to care, so we'll go yeah. with either one. <laughs> no, but I was going to ask the two of you, I mean... Did you ever find yourself expressing an opinion? I mean, if you're playing something, I'm sure you have opinions, but do you ever, ever go online and you actually talk about it? I uh, never... You know, I, uh, no, go ahead, Dave. It. Well, I, I'm, I, I was going to start with the same sort of phrase, which is I, the fact is that while I, I feel like I want to contribute to the community, I am typically terrified by gamer communities. Uh, you know, if you, you go in and you read, you know, a couple of pages, I, I tend to realize that that is just not my scene. And so anything that I try to pose as constructive criticism will either be ignored or sort of torn to pieces and, and left on the floor. And so it's it's not quite apathy, but uh, it's close. So no, I, I don't. I'm in the same place as Dave, Id, but... Uh... Uh, for me, I never, ever say anything, and it's not really a function of intimidation because I'm a part of some really weird communities, but uh, I just don't feel like there's even the slightest possibility of changing anyone's mind, so there's really not any point in saying anything. The people I talk to about games are people like Grant. I want to share my opinion with people who have an opinion that I will respect, and I hope in some way that when I say something about a game to somebody like Grant, that maybe that will actually influence the develop of the development of a game someday. So, uh, otherwise, I don't, I don't really see the point in, in in just sort of jumping into that pit of snakes. Well, that's a good. I mean, that's a good question. Is you know, has Matt? Matt, have you ever read something on? on a message board or on something like that and actually said, oh, actually, you know what? That's a good idea. Let's either incorporate that or, you know, your feedback is, is totally valid and that's and or your collective feedback is valid and we're going to change it this way. I don't remember something, like, immediately. You know, that might yeah. have been, like, little things where we said, okay, this or that. No, not in a bad way because, you know, I don't want people coming away from this thinking, well, you know, <laughs> those snotty game developers. Because... They'd never listen to us, oh, if only they had listened, because then you quickly get to the point where they say, well, this game turned out to be crap, if only they had listened. Because, I mean, yep. the problem is that as soon as you have somebody who's kind of from the outside looking in and just looking at what's out there and the game they imagine in their head, it's a very different perspective on the game. You know, if somebody came in and actually played the game and gives feedback, you're going to get tons of useful actual feedback from that. But if somebody's just kind of out there, I remember when we had, like, Wheel of Time and people were just... Because it was just a Wheel of Time game, and people have been waiting for it, and you just get these suggestions or just ideas that are so completely out there, like three-day day trips or just travel across the land, and I want you to model me needing food and camping in the night and all that stuff realistically. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds great in your head, I'm sure, but, you know, if you ever really listen to something like that, that's not going to make a good game in the first place. Yeah, I, f- I feel like fan feedback really matters when it's overwhelming. You know, when, yeah. when, when there's a beta on and every single person says, God damn it, why can't I do this? Like, like uh, I'll give you an example. With Champions Online, which my wife baited, um, 
you were unable at character creation to take a weapon that was not sword. And so I walked away from that being like, okay, this is a comic book game where I can't make Thor. And I feel compelled to make you put in a bug report that says, this is a comic book game and I can't make Thor. And I feel like a lot of people felt that way. So there was an overwhelming response and they included other weapons at character generation eventually. And Mm. I feel like when that sort of outcry begins, either they don't need me, you know, there are already a lot of voices saying what needs to be said, or I disagree with the mainstream anyway. But I mean, at that point, you actually have something that people can give feedback on, right? Because as soon as there's a beta out there, I 100% agree. You know, give your feedback and people better listen. At least go through it and see what's out there and what people are saying. I think we're mostly talking about things like the game is in development, it's still going to be a year out there, so there's just like a bunch of screenshots. And people are just kind of in their mind figuring out what the game could be or will be. And at that point, it's much harder to really implement, like, actual feedback. It's still great to listen to it and talk to people and all that, but it's at that point, that feedback just is not going to be as useful as a beta test, for example. Yeah. But, well, maybe we should uh, maybe we should segue into into actually discussing champions online, since that's one of the things that I uh, that's uh, that's a recent release uh, that that came out recently. Um, <laughs> can you, Chris, can, uh, can you can you do it? Can you do an elevator sketch for? For me, because I don't know what it is, and potentially well, for the we'll, listeners who don't know what it we'll is, we'll get th- we'll get there. Uh, we'll uh... no, that's a great way to start. I think. I mean, Let's you do... explaining what Champions Online is to David is interesting to me. <laughs> okay, well, I'll do my best. Uh, so, Champions Online, uh, I believe, just was officially released. What two week two weeks ago, Joe? I feel like it was three weeks, but I'm not sure because I actually cashed in on like the the pre-release weekend. But I think it's three uh, weeks. Right. right. It's been in beta for a while, open beta and closed beta for a while. Essentially, it, it's uh, it's developed by Cryptic Studios, who did uh, City of Heroes. And it's a superhero-based MMO, not li- well, I was going to say not licensed, and people would get mad because it is licensed. It does use the Champions license, which is doesn't have nearly the awareness of something like Marvel or DC or anything else. But it is a real license. Um, and it was released, and... Apparently successful, uh, not not quite as as initially successful from what I've heard is something like Aeon, which we can also talk about a little later. But it's it's seemingly cut from the same cloth as City of Heroes, kind of a uh, you can be anything you want superhero game. And since I have not officially played it, I can't really comment further. Got it. Thank you. What would you expect from the game if you haven't played it yet? Before we talk, you get like some experience on it. Because I mean, right, there's always jo- this point where, you, why do you want to play it? Like, why are you attracted to it? Like, what would be the main thing? Well, I, th- I think well, I, mean, I can totally step in and say why you want to play it. Um, so, there's a certain demographic of people who enjoy playing MMOs, and you can clearly see that with the you know 11 million WoW subscribers and all that. Um, but I think you know the success of movies uh, based on superheroes, particularly from the Marvel side of things have shown that there's also a significant demographic of people out there who love superheroes. And uh, really, that's all they're trying to do. It's chocolate and peanut butter. It's MMO and superheroes. But then at, at, at that point, the question becomes, why Why would you play Champions Online instead of City of Heroes? And City of Heroes has been out for a while, made by the same company, using a lot of the same kind of design choices from what I've been able to tell. Joe, as the only person who's probably watched it being played, I've only seen it being played for about a half an hour. What would you say is the is the would be the reason for people to do that? 
Well, I have played both games. Okay. Um, I will say that that <laughs> City of Heroes, uh, you don't want to play it because it's terrible. Um, it is the first attempt at making a game that tried to be an MMO that people people could play like an MMO, and also tried to satisfy comic book nerds. And I think you need to do that a couple of times before you get it right. Mm. Um, by all accounts, uh, City of Villains was actually somewhat better than City of Heroes. Um, I checked out pretty quickly. I, I played for like a week. Um, Champions, Champions Online. Online, you mean, or City of Heroes? No, I meant City of Heroes. I'm sorry. Okay, okay. Did I say the other? No, no. you did. I just you said you play. I thought you would play City of Heroes for longer. No, no, not really. Uh, okay. I played it very briefly, uh, you know, and then I I moved on. Um, to to WoW actually, like everybody else. Um, huh. with uh, with Champions Online, I'm playing it mostly because my wife is. Uh, we go to geek conventions all over the place. Um, the most spectacular being Gen Con, which is held in Indianapolis each year. And at those conventions, which are mostly about like card games and board games and RPGs and stuff, uh, Cryptic has been coming to them for a couple of years now trying to generate interest in Champions Online because Champions is an RPG license. Uh, and my wife went to the booth and signed up to be a beta tester and therefore got into the closed beta. Uh, so that is basically why, I'm, why I am playing. She loves it. We are both comic book nerds. And, you know, I have lots of things to say about it, but I don't want to talk endlessly. <laughs> well, I mean, the, but the original question was, you know, why would you play this instead of City of Heroes? And yeah, City of Heroes is not necessarily universally praised as being the great a uh, great MMO but it's reasonably still popular it's still got a fan base it, it hasn't it didn't immediately flame out i guess part of that is a function of it being the first real superhero MMO but yeah no really i will say that myself and my friends said we would really like to play a superhero MMO and city of heroes is not good enough mhm mm so uh to try to to involve the other twenty five percent of this, David, you, uh, I'm under the impression that you've never played an MMO before. Is that correct? Uh, no, I've tried. I, I have um, tried. I've I've uh, I, I did my I did my trial on World of Warcraft, and um, yeah, it's just not. I I can't do it. I can't do it. Is there anything in particular that is making you incapable of doing it, or what? Well, I mean, there's a there's a time commitment question, right? Which which I I just I can't really match. But I also get I get frustrated with the the stuff that you sort of perforce have to go through as a new character. Um, you know, go out there into that field and kill kill sixteen whatevers, and you know that just doesn't hold my attention long enough. Is uh, it because they're making you do it, and you would rather? go explore or is it because it's not it should yes. be of a higher quality or what well no i don't think it's a quality question i think um i think it is a i don't like being forced through this particular channel yeah i think it you know i, I probably should have prepared an answer to that question but um, <laughs> you t there's no no there's no <laughs> see the I, for those people who don't know and that's that's only you three would know this, but I emailed a list of what I could potentially want to talk about uh, to the yeah. other three. But the, but let me make it clear to all future guests that this is not a rigid format, and you do not need to prepare anything. It's just supposed to be you know informally talking about this stuff. And I so made a no point problem. of pretty I think, much I think, ignoring I think, that list because I want to be much more spontaneous. Because you know if you good. start 
preparing stuff, you kind of yeah, exactly. You're just going to keep talking for 20 minutes, which I can do yep. anyway. But yeah, yeah. So I think the so, short answer is it's it was a compatibility question. It wasn't a sort of contempt, and it wasn't uh, this you know this is ugly or yucky. It was just a, that kind of that kind of dedication to what ultimately is an exercise in, in creating a character more than exploring a landscape isn't something that I, I that really clicks with me. Okay, so because this is a question that we as developers always have to wrestle with at the you know how do you start your game? Do you do do you do a rigid tutorial? Do you do a fictionalized tutorial? Do you give the player all their abilities at the beginning and then take them away? If you were to and this is if you don't have an answer to this, that's fine. I just am curious if you what would get you to stick with World of Warcraft at the beginning? What would be the first hours what the first sixty minutes that would get you to to play? I think that one of the one of the selling points of World of Warcraft is is the is the size and variety of the world, right? I mean, I think that's a fair statement. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do is I would come up with some way for the first sixty minutes of gameplay to sort of drag me out into that world and become aware of the variety, the size of the world, the different the different things that I as a player would be able to do, whether it's professions or questing or I don't know what it is. Um, but something that, that, you know, sort of... I come back to the, the single-player games that I enjoyed the first part of, right? So I'm going to come back to a game like Oblivion... Or or something like that, where it's yes, it's forcing me through a tunnel, and there's no there's no way to get around the fact that this is you know I'm clearly in a training mode, but there's enough variety and enough uh, sort of aha, hey, you know, I I looked in this corner and I found two pieces of gold and I feel pretty clever, or I have six different ways for me to attack this this particular monster, and the way I do that is going to sort of guide, you know, what what the auto the auto character guesser guy is going to tell me he thinks I am right and so i like that because i like i feel like i have jumped in and have been given as much rope as the game can give me right it's not throwing me into the forest and letting me killed and getting killed immediately by wolves but it's giving me the opportunity to play with the different things that the game gives me versus hey you're basically a naked guy and you've got a stick and all you can do is be a naked guy in a stick until you've killed enough rats to get enough gold to go talk to the trainer who gives you a bigger stick, right? And that well, just feels very constraining. Well, what there there are a few things that I heard out of that, and one, it's it's interesting because Blizzard in particular, and well, not in particular because other companies have started to do this, they've really started to create some directed content towards the beginning. Um, of you know putting you in your own instance when you start a game like Lord of the Rings Online does this where the entire starting area is really at times it's it's only created for you there's times when you're only in this place with the other people who are at this stage of the game and mm -hmm. then you don't get released into the real world until later so and Blizzard has started to do that as well with with at you know I think for their next expansion they're actually going to have the first five levels for one of the new races be a flashback to a previous time with really heavily scripted story stuff to tell you what's been going on. So I think that I agree with what you're saying. When vanilla World of Warcraft first came out, that was definitely a problem. It's like if you're an orc, here you go. You're in orc town. Um, I need you to go wake up these orcs with my stick. And so they are trying to direct the content. 
a little bit more. Um, number two, I think, is 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 kind of the opposite in that it seems like you seem to enjoy that early part of Oblivion where you're playing how you want to play, and then the guy at the end is like, "This is what class you've dynamically created for yourself." Now, right. That's, that's that's real. I don't know that Evan, that you guys will have to correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think any other MMOs have done that. It's always been this is your class before you are even allowed to go into the world. Yeah, I and mean I think- every MMO I've cre- I've played has been, you know, rigid class race system. Yeah, I mean, it's and I will say that I've 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 never accepted his suggestion like not <laughs> once, and I've I've, yeah. I've started that game at least a dozen times, but I find it very clever. Where if I was if this was the first time I'd played an RPG or an RPG of this style, for him to say, you know, it seems to me like you're, and what he's basically saying is, it seems to me like you're heavy towards magic and you're heavy, or you're heavy towards the heavy armor, or or you're heavy towards eating the apple you found on the ground. Well, um, that's a great class. You know, Grant, we both we both really loved Ultima games back in the day, and they yep. to me were the first exposure to that kind of character creation where it was. Tell me about yourself, and I will give yeah. you a character. And I loved that shit. So I totally relate to where he's coming from from that perspective. Yeah, and maybe that's the like I don't know. Maybe Ultima Online did this. I I only played Ultima Online for about a day twelve years ago, but I get the feeling that they didn't. Well, I don't know. I'll have to do some research into that. But maybe that's something for more MMOs to explore. Maybe the Old Republic does something like that when they come out. But I doubt it. I get the feeling that that that's one of the pillars that you don't mess with in MMOs. Is you want to know your class going in. God damn it! And this is what I'm. Yeah. Well, I, and, but I think I think that presumption it, it it excludes it excludes a certain part of your audience, right? So presuming that someone's coming in who's going to have a, a quasi comprehensive knowledge of the, you know whatever version of Dungeons and Dragons mythos this particular game is trying to adopt or Star Wars mythos or whatever. And so if you come into this and this is a new experience for you and the first thing it asks you is what race would you like to be and what class would you like to be and you're making those decisions based on three or four paragraphs of pre-written, then I think that's frustrating from the get-go. Like, okay, I what, I'm, what I know right now is I'm going to become an elf hunter and I'm going to play that elf hunter for an hour and then I'm going to kill him. Because I know that's not going to be right, but at least I'm going to get a feel for why that's not right. Right. I think it goes both ways, because, I mean, if, because I liked the Ultima games back then, too, right? And they pretty much tried to figure out, what are you as a character, like, what are you in real life, and let's try to build a character around that. The problem with that is, in the end, you kind of end up playing yourself. Obviously, in the context of the game, but if you're just going into, well, let me find out all my preferences and how I would approach certain problems then in the end, you're kind of, I mean, it's going to be very comfortable as you're playing the game, but at the same time, you've created something that's not so much role-playing as it is playing your, yourself in that world. And I think yeah. a lot of people, as they are going into these kind of games, I, I know that I was playing Fallout 3 first, and I was playing the goody two-shoes, you know, I didn't blow up uh, blah, blow up Mega Bomb, and, you know, I pretty much was the good guy, um, male character in that. And I started playing Fable 2 after that, and I very specifically wanted a female character who was going to be, for the better... Well, who's going to be slut, you know? Like, she was just going to sleep around. She was going to kill her husband. She was going to be like a black widow because I just invested 50 hours into a game. And if I'm going to do exactly the same thing again in the next game, then I might not even notice it. But in the end, every experience kind of ends up being the same, at least in the context of that game. See, this is really interesting to me as somebody who plays pen and paper RPGs because I come into a game 
with the perspective of I'm going to play a character which is different from myself. So when Ultima pops up that screen and says, you know, uh, shit, what was one of the things? A, a poor knight needs, you know, that's exactly, exactly the one I was going to say. A poor knight needs, you know, money to do some shit. Do you just kick his ass or do you give him a coin? You know, I already had an idea of a character that I wanted to play that very possibly was different from myself. I mean, I, I love self-insertion, but I also like to adopt other characters. And I do that all the time in my other hobbies. So it's very easy for me to go into a game like that and be like, well, just because it's asking me questions, I don't see why those questions are addressed to me, the player, so much as they might be addressed to this character that I'm thinking about playing. But some well, of those questions you're talking about are, 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 are more of a morality question than a stylistic question, right? And I think the the kinds of things that I'm talking about are more more about style. Like, I'm not concerned about... And I agree with Matthias's assessment that at the end of the day, no matter what you did in Fable, you, you end up with the same character. But, um, the, you know, there was the, you know, are you a good guy, a bad guy? What is your alignment questions? But that's, I think, less important at the beginning. I think I liked how that can develop over time. But the, you know, are you going to be a knight or a sorcerer or, you know, an assassin? That's not really a question of what I am because I am none of those things in real life. I'm I'm a fat guy who goes to meetings, and so that's that's I think <laughs> that class sucks. They totally nerfed it in the last patch. They totally <laughs> fat, fat guy was overpowered. Yeah. To be honest, yeah, nerf fat guy. OMG. Well, what, we're talking about two separate things here, and like the ultimate question, if it didn't inform what class you were supposed to be, then that would be different. You know, like, if, if Ultima was nothing but a text interaction game, then those questions at the beginning would have, would, would feel a lot more or natural. As it is, they're just kind of a cool novelty in that you answer this and that informs something. But I think what everybody would rather have, well, most people would rather have is something like the, the, uh, the Oblivion game, where the Oblivion game, that Oblivion game that you're playing... <laughs> Hey. Um, uh, in, in that, here's what you did for the first half an hour. Therefore, you're you're probably this class. Am I right? It's um, yeah. It's more of an assessment of how you prefer to play than who you prefer to play. Right. Right. See, and that's think... interesting. I went into Oblivion like like with this. I don't need you to test me about like what I want to play. I know what I want to play. Get out of my way, game. Yeah. Well, I, that's why right, they offer I, that option. I, I think I think the risk of doing that though, Joe, is that you're you're assuming a lot about the people who made the game, right? You're assuming, like, what you imagine an archer to be is what the game developers and designers assumed an archer to be, right? So the, the archer in Oblivion, it's very difficult because the arrows are just as effective as a sword strike, and the sword strike is unrealistically ineffective, right? And if you don't know that going in, you you know, your what you're assuming your character is going to be is going to be very different than what oblivion hands you at the end of that particular tunnel oh oh but that's okay if i go if i'm like obsessed with archers and i go into the game like god damn it i'm gonna play an archer uh or i'm gonna play a swordsman or whatever and then the game presents me with an unsatisfying experience where it's like yeah we included archers but they suck i'm gonna be like yeah. this game is crap and i'm gonna stop playing I mean, there's two ways you can go about that. You can either say, you know what, this isn't fun enough, so I'm going to stop doing it. But you can also say, well, these are the cards that have been dealt to me. And just like in real life, I'm going to have to arrange myself somewhere around that. And yes, <laughs> as an archer, well, it kind of sucks in this game, so I'm going to have to find ways around that. But, you know, that's kind of... 
<laughs> right, which in Oblivion six, is, six I'm going to find the invisibility spell. Yeah. But well, that it, it, in Oblivion as well, like I know I'm not the only person. I think I was talking about this with either David or somebody at work and that I always try to play the stealthy guy who will sneak up and backstab you. And in, in like some games, game. Oblivion included, or I don't know, I don't remember if it was Morrowind or Oblivion where it was, it was really hard to do that. And it was not balanced well enough for me to do that and have a lot of fun doing it until later on. God, I, so. I tried to do that class in like the Might and Magic first person game. And it it was brutal. It's it's awful. So so I feel your pain sure. on that. What's interesting it actually shows us because Oblivion, a little bit less so even than MMORPGs, are like is one of these games where it's trying to be everything to everyone, and that you can very much tell the game, or you can very much choose the style that you want to play the game as, and you end up with a game where you have to balance so many things, and you have to make yep. so many things fun that in the end something is gonna you know just not gonna be done well enough. What? I think like Deus Ex was one of the first games that tried to do that and I remember like them saying, I think it was either Warren Spector or Harley Smith like just saying, you know what, we ended up with a game that wasn't doing anything as well as any of the other games that were specializing on it, but the reason why it actually came out successful is because people liked the variety and people liked creating this character and they were actually willing to kind of overlook the stuff that it wasn't doing as well. It wasn't a complete shooter. It wasn't a complete stealth game. You know, that's... But what just happened to Grant, you know, that would never have happened to you in Thief. Because in Thief, you know you're going to play as that guy, and you're actually very specifically approaching a game for that reason. Trying to do another That's video, really interesting. Yeah. It's the first time I've heard one of you as a de- put on their development hat and say something <laughs> that makes me go, oh gosh, that's that's pretty smart. That totally happened to me. Because when I played Deus Ex... I was totally like, I'm going to be the guy who never kills anybody, and I'm going to stun people with the stun prod, and you know, I'm going to take all the like high ground moral choices. And there are times when you're playing that game, and it's just stupid. You're 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 in the middle of a darkened room, and there are 15 people with machine guns in the room with you. And every time you knock somebody down, they're all like, "Holy crap, what's going on? I wonder if there's somebody in the room." And it's a very jarring experience that takes you completely out of the character you're trying to play but the fact that the game lets you make that choice and that you you get to play the thing you want to play you just you just go past it and and you accept it yeah because i think there's a there's a certain submission to like there's a certain level of acceptance that you're you're going to give the game some leeway if you feel the game is actually going to let you do what you want to do there's some fantasy fulfillment in there you're willing to look past all the little problems that it had, because let's be frank, AI in any of these games usually isn't all that realistic. You know, it's not like people should panic immediately as soon as you snipe somebody instead of kind of showing in an AI behavior and then going back to what they were doing before. But um, just because this is your fantasy and this is something specifically that you want to live out, you know, you're actually quite forgiving as to what the game does and doesn't do. If you're looking at something like Batman, like the Arkham Asylum any of you guys play that? Yeah, and I was just—I yes. was going to offer that up as a as a game that that did that right recently. Yeah, I was thinking it too because feeling... when you when you when you like attach to one of the gargoyles and sit on it, it's completely unrealistic that somebody would be like, "Gee, where did that guy go?" But it's fucking yeah, awesome, it's a... right? You're like, "Fuck, I'm Batman. I'm the Dark Knight. Fear me!" And you have the Joker <laughs> taunting those guys. And I think you're one guy down again, fellas. And then you see them like. Um, up like shoulder or like back against back and saying and saying like little things like oh my god I know he's gonna get me he's gonna get me next and you're just like uh huh 
even though you're hanging <laughs> from the fucking gargoyle, you, you immediately accept the fact that you, as the Dark Knight, are very much blending in with you know that environment. I think that was yeah, like and that's point. interesting because Batman, I think, was. It, it handled that situation better than any game I've ever seen of the, we've got a room full of guys and they're going to somehow react realistically to you picking them off one by one, which, you know, Thief tried to do, but they could never really nail because they weren't willing to go as far as Batman did, which is like, like you just said, you know, the Joker, they actually have situational dialogue that plays. These guys will, will start different AI um, routines. Well, I so. think that goes back also to what he was saying. It's a big fantasy fulfillment thing when you're talking about Batman. Yeah, so you need to get that right? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that, that people are willing to forgive pretty much anything oh, yeah. if it lets sure. them be cool and be Batman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I it has both sides of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the mistake, or not the mistake, but what you really got to do when it comes to air and that stuff, don't try to script it realistically or don't try to come up with good gameplay situations or gameplay behavior for that AI. Just make the AI do something that's going to play into what the player really wants to experience. You know, it wasn't really important that those two guys were grouping up and they were actually shoulder to, uh, again, back to back and kind of looking and they actually have a 360-degree view at this point and I can't attack them in gameplay terms. But it was much more about the fact that those guys are scared. And I know at some point they are going to make the classic horror movie uh, mistake and they are going to split up. And at that point, I'm going to come for them. And, you know, just the way that they're reacting in this way and they're actually saying these things that make me feel like a badass for taking somebody out, that's really what, you know, well, it plays into that. I think the the general problem with a lot of licensed games in the past is that they, they pay lip service to the license and that, you know, I've heard a lot of people describe, you know, Batman games in the past have been like, oh yeah, you're going to throw a batarang at some point, you may hang upside down, you'll have a belt, and that's pretty much it. It's just a generic game other than that. But I think uh, Rocksteady and all the other, you know, 20 other game companies that had something to do with it really realized that in order to to make something, a licensed game, su- succeed in this day and age to the point of critical acclaim as well as sales, because licensed games will always sell well. That's the, the sad part about this business. Um, but they really found a perfect balance of, of you know, uh, fun gameplay and making this really feel like you're playing Batman the whole time. But I think it's, it goes both ways, because this is, for one, it's about fantasy fulfillment, but it's also about enticing the player of actually acting out the character in a way that you would expect him to be acted out. Because the reason why Batman worked so well for me is because I'm not a big Batman fan. I actually, I'm one of the five people, we actually have a little fan club on the, um, on the universe that didn't like the last two Batman movies. For some reason, it just didn't <laughs> click with me. So, and I'm not a huge comic book nerd either in that, you know, I know all the big franchises and the characters that can re- very much get into them, like Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, his movies are great. But, you know, I didn't buy the mo- I didn't buy that game because I always wanted to be Batman. I did play the demo, however, and get the final game, and as soon as I got into it, I very much got into the character. And it wasn't because I was actually, like, trying to figure out or very much, like, just trying to inject what I thought Batman would do into that character. But the game was really good at actually telling me, this is what Batman is about, this is what Batman does and doesn't do. Batman doesn't use weapons, for example, he can't even try to pick them up. And in these, within these parameters, see if you're having fun or not. And I really started getting into it, and I was Batman, and I could finally see what, you know, like the real Batman, who's out there somewhere, I'm sure, is feeling every time he's taking out all the bad guys. 
But the problem. Hope is, you're listening, Batman. Yeah. Come back to us. So <laughs> let me let me ask a question of 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 I guess all of you then. So I I agree with the assessment that Arkham Asylum does a good job of making you feel like Batman. Now, would that game stand on its own merits if it if you took out the license and replaced Batman with Sam Fisher and replaced the Joker with generic crazy bad guy? Would it still stand on its own, or was it the value of the the story arc that it brought with it that pushed it up over the top? I thought it was a really good game beneath it. It didn't need Batman, but it, Batman really helped like, add it to For the me. I would respect people who were like, that was a good game. And when, you know, it got an 8.5 or a 9.2 or whatever on random review site, I would say, well, I don't see why it shouldn't, but I wouldn't play it. Um, because it you has... Wouldn't pick, you wouldn't pick it up because it wasn't... Right. Uh, it didn't have the Batman. Right, okay. because I don't get any nerd rage off of playing as Sam Fisher, but when I'm Batman, who's this comic character I've grown up with for 30 years, um, uh-huh. then... That's really cool, and that's the whole reason I would even know the game existed. Like, I think a good example is uh, Bionic Commando has a very has a char- It's a game that everybody considers to be pretty good. It's got a character that is rooted in video games instead of in comic books, and uh, you know it receives some pretty good review scores. It has unique gameplay. You know, you do the swinging thing and all that garbage. But I'm I'm not remotely interested in playing it because. There's no license that makes me want to. I um I th- Splinter Cell Conviction I think is the one that's coming out soon, where, which is supposed to be like a return to stripping Sam Fisher down to the basics and really rebooting the franchise or whatever you would want to call it. And the bar has been set so high by Arkham Asylum now that if Conviction is not as good as Batman Ar- Arkham Asylum, they're they're going to be in trouble. They're already yeah. kind of in trouble anyway. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to have to step in here. So I'm a I'm a huge Sam Fisher fan. Net of the the most recent one, whose name I can't remember, but I thought was just awful. Double um, Agent. Yeah, Double Agent. And the reason I thought Double Agent was awful because you spent a lot of time not being Sam Fisher. Like really, sure. what happened is you spent a lot of time being out of uniform and being not allowed to kill anybody. And it was just frustrating. But if I, if you know, being a, I guess enough of a comic book nerd to to you know agree with Joe's, it's Batman. You know, I'm going to play it because it's Batman. I think if you stripped it down, I think if you removed that Batmanness from it, I think that the old Splinter Cell model is a much better gameplay experience than the Arkham Asylum. You have five major areas and four major tools and three major enemy types, and that's it. Gameplay. Yeah, I, I, well, I think the gameplay is tailored to the license, and that's kind of the point, and that's why people like it. And if it just came out as a game about someone else, maybe it would get re- good review scores, but I don't think it would be considered nearly the phenom that it is, you know, in the media. I, I agree with that, and I, but I'm, my, con- my concern is, is Grant's characterization of Arkham Asylum's sort of setting the bar for a new Splinter Cell, whereas, frankly, if I was going to, if I, you know, and I'm Joe Casual player, if I was going to compare the two, fran- you know, just compare the two types of gameplay, I think they're far enough apart that I'm not sure that bar can be set by Arkham Asylum for Splinter Cell any more than it could be set for Fable. I think they're just well, I'm they're talking different. about the overall package is what I'm talking about, like, because at its core, you know, Splinter Cell, when the chips are down, you're going to start shooting some people. And and the chips are down in Batman, you're going to start fighting some people hand-to-hand. Right. And there's no 
there's no overlap there between the two games. I'm talking about like the the overall experience of the main combat once you re- have to resort to combat plus the exploration plus the mood plus the the, the franchise etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Um just the the fact that Batman is kind of universally hailed as a, a very good game um and using this license I think that um if Splinter, if the next Splinter Cell game doesn't live up to that same kind of feeling of you know what this feels like a great Splinter Cell game, oh, I, I think that, that 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 that's disappointing. Um, but from what I've seen, Splinter Cell Conviction is doing some things that are really ballsy, and I hope that they that they uh, that they find success. I haven't played one since Pandora Tomorrow. Um, they've never really been my thing, but uh, but I like that those games exist, and I you know I, I'll always support a, a franchise that does well for itself. And if we want to compare those two games, just real quick, like, what, and I, I've never been a huge Splinter Cell uh, fan myself, which kind of kills me, because I know what's behind it, how many guys like it, but I think what's the big difference between Splinter Cell and Batman for me was that, and this is more my preconception of how the game should be played, or how I should play the game, than the game's fault, but, um... I always felt that when I'm playing Splinter Cell and I have to get out of stealth mode and I have to start shooting, I failed. Like, I shouldn't be in this position. And yeah. mm-hmm. because of that, I'm kind of feeling worse about myself. I might even go back to a safe point And, you know, I failed. Whereas in Batman, if I get into a situation where somebody sees me, I will joyously just go into the middle and start beating guys up. In other words, you know, it doesn't matter how you play that game. It doesn't matter if you are being stealthy Batman, the shadow of the night, taking guys out stealthily, and, you know, they start fearing you. Or if I am in the middle and I'm joyfully running into a group of 20 guys, because I feel that's still something that Batman would do. And in fact, I like I was looking for groups of many people because I wanted to get the achievement where you string together 40 <laughs> combos, which I never yeah. quite got. I got to, like, 34, and, you know, it kills no, me. me so. either. It, but it's it's much more of a preconception because who's to say that when I'm um, Sam Fisher I couldn't just shoot everybody up it just feels like what the character would do or what my perception of the character is is this and if I'm going into this other mode I you know I, I wasn't enjoying the game as much anymore you know I felt the same that's way a real problem because you have to I felt the same way when I played Splinter Cell and I think it's because I was trained to feel that way by Thief and by uh, Deus Ex because well, I also think that I think I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, it's cool. Uh, when I when I play Deus Ex, if you make a stealth character, you're kind of retarded at everything else, and so when you get in a fight, it's kind of like, oh, I screwed up. They're going to shoot me now. I'm going to lose half my health. It's going to be dumb. And in Thief, that's the only kind of character you can play. Um, when you get discovered, people just start kicking your ass, and you feel like an idiot. So. Uh, I think in Splinter Cell, I definitely went into it with the preconception that if I got in an open fight, I was dumb. Well, I, and I think that that is what Splinter Cell is, right? Because I think as soon as Sam gets seen by more than one person, he's dead. There's just, you know, he's not this he's not this armored, uh, you know, fighting Rambo machine. And so I think the, the trick with Splinter Cell, and I think why Splinter Cell is so polarizing versus a Batman is that you don't get to choose your playing style with Splinter Cell really at all, right? That is what Sam does. Is he's sneaky and he, he does things and he has to hide bodies. Much like Thief, you had one option. Um, whereas with Batman, as Matt was saying, you can make the choice, right? Like, I really enjoyed just grabbing people and yanking them with the bat claw. And I would just keep <laughs> doing that because it's funny. Um, and you you can do that and still beat the game, and I know that because I did that and can still beat the game. Um, 
But when you get into the sorts of things like, you know, like any of the Tom Clancy uh, games, really at all, they prescribe for you your game, your play style, right? There are sniper rifles in Rainbow Six, but there's no reason for sniper rifles to be in Rainbow Six because you never really get to use them. Uh, it's just that's the gameplay that they're prescribing. And so, I mean, when when you guys are building a game, do you start with a question of are we going to be prescriptive as to the who, what the main character is or are we going to be open-ended or does it sort of happen that way? Well, usually you have to set out from the beginning to you have to make that choice to make it as open-ended as possible. You have to say especially in something like Oblivion is an extreme case, you know, well, there there are 20 different ways to play this game, and we have to make sure all of them are, are at least in the same ballpark of being fun. And to a lesser extent, something like Batman, we have to make it fun to jump up on gargoyles and pick people off one by one, and we have to balance the shit out of this combat because it's it needs to be fun when you're doing that too. Right. Um, I mean, but generally, you know, in the kind of games that, that we've made in the past... Uh, I'll let Matt talk about his too, but it's generally at the beginning of the project you say, we're making an action RPG. This is the way you play an action RPG. And the, and the variety comes in either having different skill trees to go down, which are still rigidly defined at the outset, or you're playing an action RPG, this is how you're going to play it. You're playing a first-person shooter, this is how you're going to play it. There's generally not much room for improvisation unless you say from the beginning we need to provide that room. You know, it's going to come from a different perspective, actually, because um, I know this might circle around a little bit, but uh, you got to realize whenever somebody starts playing a game, they're actually very very actively submitting themselves to certain rules. It's like there's, um, there's a term for it called illusory attitude, which was put forth in like one of these books that's um, analyzing game design. But games inherently are incredibly inefficient, right, in that... If I wanted to play golf, for example, and the only objective that I have is to take a little white ball and get it 250 yards from me into a little cup on the middle of the lawn, well, the most efficient way is just to take the ball, go over there, and put it in there. But that's not what golf is. The reason how golf becomes a meaningful game is because we're actually actively submitting ourselves to the rules that the only way you can transport the ball and now get it across the playing field is by using this club. And out of that, the game of golf emerges and people are actually, you know, having fun within the context of that game. But it's very much us actively saying, okay, these are the rules, and I'm accepting these rules. There's no question about that. I'm going into this loosery state, the loosery attitude, and I'm accepting everything that the game, like all the limitations that the game is actually putting on me. And the same happens in, like, every time we're playing a um, computer game. And that's where, like, what Grant just mentioned. is like, okay, we are going to make a game, in which we expect you to sneak around, and that's kind of the context of the game. You want to say something? No, I was just going to say that's really similar to something that that we say in the role-playing game community, which is that restriction breeds creativity. Um, the idea being that if you say to somebody, think of a guy that you want to play, and that's the only statement that you give them, they're going to be lost, and they're not going to come up with anything interesting. But if you say, uh, think of a guy that you would want to play who could you know, realistically exist in a 13th century monastery. Well, you've put such an incredible restriction on what they're allowed to play that they'll start going, oh, geez, how can I, how can I make this work? What would be interesting in this setting? What appeals to me? Because all of these restrictions which you impose on yourself and which you accept as the game, like the, the whole idea that the game can happen in the first place, all that emerges. But we don't have... At least I don't feel like we don't have that as a computer game community or as an industry yet is 
something that describes a submission to the character. We have this loosery attitude, which is, okay, we're submitting ourselves to the actual game rules. But the same happens when I'm playing somebody like Sam Fisher or Batman or something that's much more projective, like I'm playing um, Half-Life 2. And Gordon Freeman is much, you know, it's much more about me projecting my added, like my um, actions onto that guy. But as long as the player actively accepts what the character is, what this character does, how he acts, and he's not actively trying to break it the entire time, when I'm playing as Batman, and that's why Batman Arkham Asylum was so good, is I was never trying to be a dick and trying to be something that Batman was not. Batman is about doing these things, and I accept that, and that's how I really enjoyed the game, because I feel like I'm Batman. But I was not trying to pick up a weapon and trying to shoot everybody. I was not trying to be a dick. Like, you know, like it's like this inbred attitude that you have in all of these, um, like pretty much every game player. We are... We're exploring the simulation boundaries. We're exploring the rules of this um, of the space, and we're actively trying to break it. We're trying to figure out where are the boundaries, what can I do and cannot do. And the problem with characters is that they're usually not rigidly defined, and it's very easy to just do something that the character wouldn't do because that's the way that the game developer um, imagined him, or that's the way that the story is set up. You know that. Unless the game really goes out of its way to create this space where the player actively accepts that this is what the character does and this is what he doesn't do, that's where you're going to run into trouble. Because you're going to have the player trying to test the boundaries and trying to play the character in a way that's not consistent with the game, that's not consistent with the way that the developer wanted to figure, uh, wanted it to be set up. And frankly, it's just not going to be good in the context of the game because I'm trying to be Rambo when I'm supposed to be you know, a guy sneaking around in shadows. And as soon as that boundary breaks down and the player isn't in that state anymore, that's where the problems come. Because, you know, at this point the player is like kind of just going around and pretty much trying to break the game, which is his right, but you pretty much lost him at that point. And as an industry, we don't really have, there hasn't been a lot of like talks at GDC or just in general about that specific, like, well, that problem. What is it? Isn't the guy you're just? Isn't the guy you're describing? Isn't he just a jerk? I mean, isn't no, that... no, no. Well, but the guy who's the guy who's buying my game is never a jerk. I mean, if I approach it from <laughs> that, no, you know, if I approach it from that um, perspective, then I, the player is my enemy. And at that point, okay, but uh, if you're making if you're making Rainbow Six Vegas two, which is a shooter, right? And there's nothing special about it. You cannot play. Uh, Bishop as a sneaky character, it doesn't let you. You cannot, uh, you know, you can't go up and punch people, it doesn't let you. The guy who complains because he can't do that, I mean, is that, I mean... Well, of course you gotta, is, I mean, you gotta draw a boundary at some point where somebody complains that he couldn't be something that the game clearly was not about. You know, if, I'm right. play, if I am buying something like, you know, Rainbow Six and I'm complaining that I couldn't fly through the sky... Of course, you I couldn't cast pretty, a spell, right? Yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta draw some pretty like some boundaries and saying, okay, this is what we're trying to create, and somebody isn't in that mind state. Of course, he's not. But if it's much more like, it's much more ambiguous in that I'm a superhero, but it's like one of these big franchises, one of these characters, which is why I mentioned earlier, licensed product is really good because you get a predefined character with so much baggage and so much history. You can dig into. At the same time, everybody's going to have a slightly different take on what the character would and wouldn't do. And as soon mm -hmm. as like, you get into the state where I am thinking that Batman would deal with this situation in this way, and the game designer said, you know what? You're wrong, because our interpretation of the character is actually that way. Um, 
as soon as you get to that point, you either because obviously there's a tension. There's like the, the player who's going to start the game has a willingness to kind of get into the character, right? And he is going to be somewhat malleable about how what he's going to accept as what the player, uh, what the character would do and wouldn't do. And he, he, he's willing to be steered into. Tell me, tell me what Batman does, how he goes about stuff. It's it just as soon as he get, you get to the state where he completely disagrees with the way you can go about things that you know that barrier is um, is breaking down. But you know, I'm I'm just putting a whole bunch of stuff. I'm just throwing stuff at the wall because, as I said, as an industry, there hasn't been that much focus on this yet. And I think that's like one of the key elements to creating more games where you actually do play characters that haven't had amnesia immediately. So if that happens, you're in the same state. Or um, characters which are completely projective, like the Master Chief, because you never see his face because, you know, you're supposed to be that guy. But for us to create characters that are actually have a real history, characters I'm interested in, characters I'm not trying to embody immediately, but I'm very happy to steer through the world and enable to do stuff, and still keeping the player on the same page and actually willingly do that to actually get to that point, that's, I mean, that's really what we haven't done yet well. And that's where this character eagerness, whatever you want to call it, you know, just this willingness to stay within the boundaries of that define the character, that's where they come into play. I don't know, maybe that's well, like like pie-in-the-sky theory and I completely lost you <laughs> at this point. Well, I'd hire you. Well, no, I, I really felt like... Uh, the, the thing that we haven't said is that these are two different kinds of games and two different kinds of mindsets. I feel like I'm capable of enjoying both mindsets where I go in and I play a predefined character with certain, you know, emotional proclivities and that sort of thing. Or I go in and I play a character who is a blank, blank slate and the game's trying to, to give me as many options as possible. I, I actually tend to prefer the blank slate option but I like both kinds of games. So I think if you compare something like Fallout 2 is one of my favorite RPGs of all time, and you're really allowed to be any character you want to be, and the game is kind of built around accommodating that. But if you look at most Japanese RPGs, you know, like the ubiquitous Final Fantasy VII, you really can't say, I think Cloud should be nicer. You know, that you don't, you don't have the ability to control that and I think they're just two different kinds of games. I think that, and I don't know if you developers really agree with this, but I always feel like the more a game embraces one of those extremes, the more successful it is. Sure. I mean, that's the, it's just the classic PC RPG versus console RPG distillation is, you know, do it, is it an interactive story or is it a role-playing game? And... Or is it a you know role playing game as defined as I'm going to create the character I want to create and play him the way I want to play him, um, and yeah, if you've got something in between, then it's generally not that successful. And that's you know with a few exceptions, like I guess Knights of the Old Republic makes you this character that could either be good or evil, but is a a Jedi regardless. Or were you a Jedi in that game? I don't. Yeah, remember. you were. It, it, that game was sneaky, though, because it's exactly like what Matt just said, which is, well, I guess you can give the character amnesia, and everyone acknowledges that that's lazy, and that's absolutely what that game did, and probably pulled it off better than any other amnesia story that's ever been done, and yet still, it was just an amnesia story. So even if you decided to be a good guy, you didn't really control your character, because at the end you found out, well, you used to be a huge fucker. <laughs> Spoilers. 
Yeah, I mean, but you know, OMG I mean, spoilers. <laughs> the reason why so many games are doing it is because it solves so many problems, right? This because this is supposed to be a character who's separate from the player. He's not so much somebody you just project yourself onto, but to get the player in the same plate as that guy actually is about, give him amnesia, because at this point, both know exactly the same amount of information. And as he's figuring out what his past was like, well, the player learns it at the same time. So you always have the same kind of information available to you. I think it's now, Different games have solved that problem in better ways, I think, like, you know, for all of its faults, I think Final Fantasy X did it in a good way of here's a, a person that's been transported to a world they know nothing about. God, that actually and... occurred to me when you were saying other games have done it in different ways. I was like, oh, Final Fantasy X, and then you mentioned it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, it's essentially amnesia, except, but this is also combining it with the the story of we're kind of along for the ride here. There's a main, or there's like the, the, the person of legend, and we're, we're kind of hanging around with them while they perform their legendary things. Um and, you know, Final Fantasy IX does it as well, which I'm playing through with my fiancé right now. But, um, yeah, it's it's it, I, I, I generally prefer the, the, the game where they give me a character and I watch this character do what he's supposed to do based on what the, the writers said. But then, you know, that's, that's part of being the kind of developer I am slash writer, whatever you want to call it. To me, it's just, I mean, the problem I have with these games, and I mean, I like them too, I'm not nearly as... Sn- big of a Final Fantasy nerd as Grant is, who used to play, like, finish one Final Fantasy every weekend. Um, but, I mean, I like playing them. The one thing I don't like about them is I just feel that those kind of games don't really unlock the power of our medium, which is like, I mean, sounds a little bit... It, it's much more an interactive movie that you get to follow along, and it within yes. that context, it does it very well, but it does not really get you... It's, I, I never really feel like I'm Cloud, I'm Squall, whoever it is that the main character is. I'm just kind of following along their exploits and, you know, while the entertainers I'm doing it and I'm wondering what happens next, but I never really get on the same page with those characters. Oh, yeah, kind of thank you for saying that because I say that to Grant and I feel like an asshole when I say it, you know. I say, no, the, I, I, there's no, there's no right or wrong in this debate. Just one is an interactive story and one's a, a, a not. Right, you know, but piece, I really feel like model, similar to the idea of are you playing a character or are you playing a blank slate, I like it when, when creative endeavors go whole hog on one, you know, methodology. And so when I'm being asked to watch a story and play a game, I feel like that impairs the story and it impairs the game. And if I want to see a story, well, a movie or a play is just a better way to do that. And so those games, you know, traditional JRPGs, they feel like it's, okay, here's some story, and it's kind of like a movie. Okay, stop that. Now go over here and play this game that's not nearly as fully realized as some other games, and then go back and watch some more story. And so I kind of feel like there is an approach that is superior where story and gameplay happen at the same time. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like, it's I'm not dissing it at all, and I'm not saying making these kind of games is easy, but I do feel that those games are attacking problems on a story front that have already been solved. And once again, I do not feel like they're completely unlocking like all the power that this medium is going to have as we go like into the next few decades. Because it is very much a evaluative experience in that I'm seeing these characters, I'm interested in what they're doing and how they're acting, 
but I'm never really, I don't have a vested interest in how they're acting because I'm already at the level where I'm saying, you know what, you guys do whatever you want. I'm just going to follow what you do and I'm going to be interested, but I'm not really on the same page with that character. I don't really have as much of an opinion as I could because as I'm playing these kind of games, I mean, I think what we can get, like, the experience that you really get to is you feeling like you're the character and you having an opinion on stuff. And it, these, like, JRPGs aren't really doing that. And... Once again, I'm not dissing them, but I don't really feel like it's really getting to the ground of what we can do. It's it's just kind of, it's much more of a movie-watching experience where I'm kind of just evaluating what those guys are doing. I'm interested in following along. Yeah, sure, but I'm doing activities to further the story. I'm not doing well, activities feeling like I'm the character. Which It's true, but I, I think one of the reasons why they're so popular and still continue to be this day and why people are still as tolerant of them as they are is because generally that's where the best stories are found with the, with the exception of what? things like what's happening in the half-life world. Um, but that's a lot of the times when you're, when you're in a blank slate character or when you're in a silent protagonist or when you can create your own guy, the, the story isn't as, because they have to account for all these different things that you can do, all these different ways that you can play, all the different orders that you can take in doing something, the story almost by definition becomes d more diluted. I know. You know it, it becomes more quintessentially game like what you're talking about, Matt, but it's not necessarily a better story because of it. No, and, that's, and that's only as it relates to story, though. Yeah. And I'm just listening to it, and I agree with you, but I would like really qualify it by saying that's where the best stories are found in the traditional story context that we know. And, you know, if that's what games are all about, sure, fine. But those games aren't really furthering what games can be. You just call it a deluded story if, you know, you have to account for various ways that the character could act and all that stuff. Um, but for me, I mean, that's really where I would want to put my development efforts. Because every time I'm just telling a story in the more classical structure and, you know, more as an outside observer, just seeing what's happening and in, the, in between doing some activities to further that story... I'm just kind of treading water. I'm doing something that games have done. I mean, there have been so many Final Fantasies that have been doing that well. For me, I guess as a developer, it's just more interesting to actually go in there and take the next so, step. So, well, it depends, on the, it depends on the game, too. I mean, like in, in Batman, the story doesn't change. You go from point A to point B to point C. It's just that the gameplay is, is significantly more interesting during those spots where the story stops but, than, a, than Final Fantasy... 10. Well, Batman's yeah. interesting too because Batman takes place in the twenty-four hour window, right? And so th they they didn't really have to suffer th struggle through a whole lot of story. Uh, one yeah, of the examples, I, it's uh, true. I'd like to get comments from you guys on uh, Mass See, that's, Effect. I'm actually really interested was... in what you think of the JR, JRPG thing as as the representative of the casual mainstream. What does David? Who yeah, knows what, the name what, of the main character David of the Rainbow Six Games? What does David think about the idea of watching some polygons <laughs> talk to each other for a while and then sort of coming into this very abstracted fight scene for ten minutes and then going back to watching? It's interesting because I think I've I think I've told Grant that I hate the Japanese RPG, <laughs> but I've never been able to articulate why. And so it's it's been interesting to hear the characterization of. Um, you know, interactive story versus RPG, which I think is part of it. I also find in the ones that I've played the actual combat mechanic to be really frustrating. Um, so I kind of hate them, and I've kind of stopped even trying to play them. 
Um, and I acknowledge some of some of the you know some of the awesome beauty in some of those games. But as as you said, Joe, I also have a DVD player, and so if I'm looking for awesome beauty in a story, I don't need to be getting thumb calluses while I watch it. I was going to say actually, for me, it's the reason why I stopped being interested in them. And Grand was actually the Evangelist. Like I hadn't. I think the first time I ever played a Final Fantasy was the PC version of Final Fantasy VII. That's how bad oh, it, it was, hurts. and you know, and then it I actually hurts. got up. <laughs> then I played Final, Final Fantasy VIII. Actually, it was even worse. Um, but you yeah. know, I played Final Fantasy IX, Final Fantasy X. The problem is, in the end, it's kind of the same story again and again. And if what I'm after is, uh, you just said that, David. It's you know, if I would just want to see something that kind of, it's, I don't know, an act of myth reinforcement or something where I'm just kind of going through a story and I'm enjoying it because. I just like watching that. I'd much rather put a DVD in there, watch that for two hours, and I'm done with it, as opposed to having actually to go through all the activities between the story. And there's more to that because you actually grow in power and, you know, there's character development just in a pure like, power sense. So, I mean, there's more to it, okay. But uh, honestly, two hours DVD is going to give me the same that the 40 hours of just going through all these activities is going to give me in the Final Fantasy game. Yeah, and I don't think that anybody would argue that Final Fantasy VII, could, the story of that game, could hold up against the most finely crafted stories from film and from books and stuff like that. Sure, it's good. I mean, even Final Fantasy VII, I don't even think is the strongest in the series. But yeah, there are there are definitely ways to get your story in a more efficient way. I just you know that's a, there, there's nobody. I can't imagine somebody saying that, you know, that's the pinnacle of storytelling, because it's just not. I agree with that as someone who has played these games for, you know, <laughs> 25 years. Again and again um, and again. Yeah. So, um, David, you were going to, you said something about Mass Effect. What were you uh, specifically looking for there? So where I was going with Mass Effect is as, as, a, as a player, I found the gameplay to be meh. But I found the story to be quite good, like a, a fully realized science fiction universe, you know, on par with, you know, well, that's so, different from a story, though. I mean, which what, what are you what are you saying that I'm you saying I'm about saying it, that the narrative that, or the world? Well, I, okay, so I, I think it's easier for you to. Make I'm not that trying distinct. to trap you. I'm just no, 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 no. I, I, but I think it's an interesting point because I think that's an easier distinction for you to make than it is for me. Mm, right, sure. so I think when you know, in something like in, in in a mass in Mass Effect, where the story is, you know, sort of in short form, OMG spoilers, the you know human race discovering this massively advanced technology, which catapults us into this, you know, whole new uh, world that we're not prepared for, right? And so the story and the universe are fundamentally, you know, at that point, the same thing. Um, from a gameplay perspective. And so I played all the way through Mass Effect, not because I enjoyed the game, but because I enjoyed the story. Sure. But I mean... Um, yeah, the, game, the gameplay been... and many other features of Mass Effect were not that great. Were Not not that great, but they were... They, there was definitely room for improvement. Yeah, my question is, if there had been a game or a movie or a book that had the same story in it, which would you have gone after? So, like, I mean... We, I, so I think I just finished. Interestingly enough, I just finished a couple of weeks ago reading uh, Rendezvous with Rama. I don't know if any of you have read that. I have read it. Um, and so that is a pretty there good, is. pretty good, pretty closed-ended sci-fi story, right? It, it happens over a couple of months. It doesn't. There's nothing sort of huge that happens at the beginning or the end of it. Yeah, um, very slow-paced. 
pretty slow paced, but you know, sort of compelling. I think so. I would put the story slash universe of Mass Effect on par with that book, and so yes, I would read if and as much energy was put into the the creating of Mass Effect was put into the writing of the book Mass Effect. I believe I would read it. Which is but funny you, because but usually would you read it books... as a preference over the over the game? Uh, actually, given given my frustration with the gameplay, yes, I think I would have if it was a better. If it was a better, a more playable game, um, I don't know the answer. That's a that's an interesting question. But the the reason I tried to separate it between story and world in Mass Effect is because the world of Mass Effect is really awesome. I mean, I mean, I'm not as big of a science fiction junkie as as the two of you are, uh, David and Joe. I've read my share, but I'm I'm not a, a fanatic. And so this idea of of humans not being the dominant you know, race in the near future where we've developed this society is a very fascinating thing to me. And the level of prejudice that existed against humans was really interesting. But the story, the narrative from start to finish didn't, was really not nothing special. It was well told to me, mm. but it was just like, is Shepard is the first, what are they called? Spectres. And he has to go try to stop this guy. And he eventually does. And along the way, oh, there's geez, not spoilers. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's the, I'm, but there's not really there are set pieces along the way that are impressive, but it's not like the story is 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 a roller coaster rider that it doesn't need to be, but that's not what was memorable to me about that game well that's interesting so, because there are science fiction series and novels that that are like that, and generally people refer to them as future histories and mm -hmm. the idea is that no individual story that's being told in this short you know, in this short story or in this particular novel is really all that compelling. You know, it might be something very standard like a guy was wronged and he's out for revenge, you know, or whatever. But mm -hmm. in the act of pursuing that story, he passes through a very compelling environment that yeah. it becomes more and more complex and, and people become more and more invested in it as more of those books go by. Like, I think the classic example is probably Asimov's big series, um, which I'm not a huge fan of, but but the idea was I'm going to put out 40 books, and they all take place in the same, you know, universe. And people love that setting. And who who really gives a shit what an individual book is about? Yeah. So Joe, do you sure. find it do you find it as easy as Grant does to sort of separate narrative and story from world? Well, I think that I come at it from a third perspective just because I'm a role-playing game nerd. So, you know, uh -huh. there's this idea that, like, for example, the Star Wars universe, right? If you're going to play a Star mm -hmm. Wars role-playing game and sit down with your friends and roll some dice and pretend to be Wookiees and all that shit, right? You are going to, you're not going to be the main characters of the story of Star Wars because that story's already right. told and there's really no room for you to be like, I'm Luke Skywalker, and I'm going to do something different. You know, you Luke Skywalker has to kind of do what Luke Skywalker did, or the setting breaks. So you might say, we are an intrepid group of rebels in this distant sector of space, and we're fighting against the Empire in our own way because we are a an essential supply depot for the Rebel Alliance. And your whole game is built around that objective and... So your story really doesn't have anything to do with the story of Star Wars, but you absolutely must have the setting 
of the Empire and Star Destroyers and Wookiees and Slavers and Blaster Rifles and Lightsabers and all that shit in order to immerse yourself in that game. But your story in that case is also, if it's a good one, if you if the game you're playing is a good one, if the people you're playing with are good, your story becomes epic in its own way. Your little bubble is just as epic as, as what you're playing inside of, ideally. Right, and a lot right? of games that are set in environments like that have sort of this gentleman's agreement that, well, nothing that happened in those movies that we love would have been possible if we hadn't been off screen doing this yeah. super important shit that enabled them to even you know, do what they did. Right. I'm, I, the reason I brought it up is because uh, one of my favorite uh, RPGs recently is Persona 4, as as you guys probably know already. I've written a lot about it on my site, and et cetera. And it was, it, uh, it's, it's, its focus was very small. It, was a, it all took place in a small town. It was not a save-the-world kind of thing, although it ended up being that towards the end. It started out, and for the most of the game, was just about this this small group of people and what they were doing and et cetera et cetera and so this world that they'd established was was pretty fascinating to live in but ultimately there were no like there was no Luke Skywalker and if there was you were the micro Luke Skywalker you know so it's it's interesting to me that that a uh, a thing like Mass Effect kind of has it both ways in that you know you Shepard is the first specter he eventually does save the the galaxy but there's also this kind of one-on-one -on -one interpersonal conflict that that is going on between him and this and this guy that he's chasing and you know this is nothing new these stories have been being told for a long long time but because Mass Effect did it in a world which was so well realized from the tiniest detail to you know the history the timeline of the universe is one of the reasons why it was so successful and that's kind of almost independent of the gameplay which i think most people can agree that the gameplay for mass effect was nothing to was nothing special but i mean as you're playing the game and that's i think for me the big distinction to something like final fantasy is that as i was playing mass effect i felt like i was driving the story i felt like i could i could identify with shepherd i could even be i am shepherd because, you know, very early on, they pretty much get me on the same page with them because they just, like, they appeal to my inferiority um, complex by saying, you're human, you can't be a specter. And, of course, my immediate gut reaction is, well, fuck you, of course I can. And, you know, you very much know exactly how you're feeling, like, um, Shepard. And ever since then, he's out to, to prove something, I'm out to prove something. And, you know, as I'm going about to save the universe eventually, it very much is me and Shepard doing it, you know, together being on the same page. But something like um, Final Fantasy was much more observant, where, you know, it actually goes between different um, perspectives in many of those games as well. And that's where yeah. I feel, you know, like, if we are comparing this, I think that's how we started this discussion. Like, why does Mass Effect work, at least some people, instead of Final Fantasy? To me, that's the reason. Because, you know, I'm feeling like I'm actually driving the story. And much more than reading the book, and, you know, we just talked about the story being good and well told, but not being like an awesome story that, I don't know, would light the world on fire. That's why I actually would have liked or liked playing the game more than I probably would have liked reading the book. Because, But in a sense, you're only driving the story in Mass Effect by, by shooting really mundane enemies along your way from plot point to plot point. Of course. I mean, you're not, you're not affecting the world and what you do, and and almost by necessity until you get to a point where you're usually not in control. It usually yeah, I, is a cutscene. I think you're really underestimating the level of how jarring it is that things like combat and quests are so abstracted in JRPGs. 
I mean, there there really is this idea that you're kind of walking around on the game world, and that's one perspective, but then when you enter a town, you have this character that's fully three-dimensional, and then when you encounter an enemy that might not even be, like, represented on the screen, suddenly you're sucked into this vortex where you have to have a conflict, and it's just so, it's so sectioned up that it's very hard to feel like, hey, I'm Cloud Strife, and I'm pissed off, and I have a big sword, you you really do, and like he said, the the constant perspective changes really add to that as well. It, it's very hard to feel like I am Cloud Strife. It's more like I'm watching what Cloud does, and sometimes I get to pick which way he attacks his enemies. Well, that's why one of the reasons why I think a lot of people think that the way that Half Life chooses to tell their stories is one of the best ways to do it. In that there are no, there's no letterboxing. If you miss something, you miss something. But we never, we never change perspective. We never go from combat to cutscene. It's all happening continuously. You know what's and weird maybe about there is some merit to that. What's weird about Half Life is I have played honestly the first half of like three of those games and quit. But uh, I have never really understood anything about Gordon Freeman. He is just an appearance and a profession, and like, you know, some, at this point, things that have become traditional about the character, the glasses, and certain guns, and the suit, and all that, but who that character is, other than I'm a scientist, I, I really have no sense of that. Well, Valve has turned that into a cottage industry, from Half-Life all the way through Portal, through Left for Dead, they're... Essentially, they've got flashy visuals and a great way of getting you from point A to point B, but the details are almost never the meat of what's going on. They're always just around the periphery. There's stuff scrawled on walls. There's, uh, you know, uh, there's logs that you or things that you could look at along the side. There's just there's. It's not usually the story doesn't isn't happening because the main character is doing something awesome. It's 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 you know, they're they're really kind of what they do is kind of hollow, but it still ends up being very satisfying to people because it's, it's, it's polished. Yeah. I think the fact that they do like actually create a character and put so much into like the way he looks and the style of the character and everything kind of leads me to expect that he's going to have like emotions and like feelings and opinions about things, but he doesn't. I I think it's much more successful actually when you're completely faceless uh, it, when you're going to tell a story that way, and I would say that System Shock 2 is the is the game that really brings that home for me. Uh, we could talk for two hours about System Shock 2, and perhaps we <laughs> will at some point. Um, I have received uh, via Skype a message from from one of you that says that uh, that we are uh, we are we are theoretically going to lose one of our our members. Uh, so maybe we should uh, we should start winding this down um, on yeah, the agenda was, that I sent to. <laughs> yeah, so so much for your agenda, by the way. I mean, it, is that a, is that a compelling podcast to talk about, like why JRPGs are successful for some of us and other modes of storytelling are not or are? I mean, talking about that for two hours, does anybody want to listen to that? I do. Right, but... Of course, I'm choosing not to worry about that because the point of what we're doing here is to have developers and non-developers talking about this stuff and i think just from the mouth of of matthias alone we've gotten enough compelling content for uh for for five uh podcasts that are like this i mean that's why it's episode zero too right because you know what i've never done one and 
I don't even know if this has to go up on the webpage or not. It probably will, like for people who can see the humble beginnings and all that. But I certainly think it was. It certainly showed me that I think there's a lot of just. It, it's a nice fresh perspective, because there's so many people just shooting the shit about various things, but the theme isn't very obvious. And I mean, just talking about it, because we kind of keep going between this is what a developer thinks and this is just, you know, my theory as a non-developer. That works for me. Yeah, and I, you know, this could, theoretically could be episode zero. I, I, I would call it episode zero if it wasn't as compelling and if it didn't turn out as well as it did. But there's no reason why this can't be the episode one of this podcast. Yeah, um, I don't really. I mean, I don't have a strong opinion either way. I just. I'm yeah, well, but but like Joe says, you know, the agenda <laughs> didn't really last, and I'm totally fine with that because, like I said repeatedly to to all of you, that was just supposed to be something to come back to in case we found ourselves with nothing to say, and that yeah. that concern went out the window pretty quickly. Yeah, God, if anything, we have a hard time being like, "Gosh, I really want to say something, but I don't want to talk too much, but I really want to say something." Yeah, no kidding. I know. Well, well, uh, the next time we have uh, Matthias or David on, we can we can have that again. Um, so yeah, we're uh, we've the little timer on my recording says that I've been recording for over an hour and a half, um, if you can believe that. I uh, have to go been... pee badly. <laughs> okay, well uh, I'll wrap it up then. This has been uh, episode one of the as yet unnamed podcast. I'll come up with a name by the time I upload it. I've already designed a logo, so I'm just going to yeah. Call I it think that. I have a pretty good idea of what you're going to call it. So don't yeah, tell people the... you don't know what it's called. It's tr well, I, it's called the Two Versus Two podcast for now because I made a logo last night and I liked how it turned out. So that's what it's going to appear on iTunes and such. I can and tell if we that. change it later, we'll change it later. Um, but this has been uh, Grant, Joe, David, and Matthias, and uh, thank you all for listening. And we'll see you. We'll hear you. We'll we'll see you. We'll let you be. Let us be heard by you. <laughs> Again okay, soon. Do something else because you have to edit that one out. Yeah, I'll figure that out. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's it. And uh, thanks for listening. And bye bye.